when I finally realized I had to put myself first in order to physically exist and function for my body to work properly, I realized that I had completely lost myself. Well, Doug, you have a great tool. It's called your heart. Take a girl and a guy and they fall madly in love and form a family. Sprinkle in some counseling degrees and a doctorate, a dream of transforming relationships as we know it. And 20 years later, we give you power couple, Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. And this is their podcast, Couples Synergy. And welcome back to another episode of Couple Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean. Hi, I'm Dr. Ray. And I'm Jean. And this is our podcast about love, marriage, and relationships. Please check us out online at couplesynergy.com or on Facebook and Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn at Couple Synergy. And please subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, or send us any suggestions on topics you'd like to hear more about. And now on to Couple Synergy, an in-depth look at love, marriage, and relationships where we bring you our experience helping thousands of couples transform their relationships for over 20 years. Every day we get to hear intimate details about a couple's celebrations, disappointments, and everyday challenges. We've often wished these stories were shared because we know we are more similar than different. So we've created not only an avenue where you can hear about people's intimate lives, but an atmosphere where people come over to our home saloon, pour a drink, and share their stories. People like today's guest, Dana Diaz and her husband, Doug. Dana is the author of the best-selling book, Gasping for Air, The Stranglehold of Narcissistic Abuse. She strives to create awareness and understanding to ensure victims are given the support they need to first understand their situation and then begin the healing process. I want to thank you so much, both of you, for being on our show today. This is going to be a really awesome topic to talk about. And uh, yeah, well, thanks, guys, for being on the show. Oh, thank you for thank having you. us. This will be fun. Doug has never been on a podcast with me before. So my debut. No. His debut. <laughs> Welcome to podcast world. Well, you know, before we get into the book and kind of what prompted the book, why don't you guys tell us and our audience a little bit about yourselves? Like how old are you guys? And you know, what do you do for a living? And and uh how long have you been together? Absolutely. We have been a couple for what, three and a half years now, something yes. like that. Yeah, we've been yeah. friends. Well, before that, though, probably five or I think we established five years, at least maybe six. We, we knew each other. So um, in my real life, I sell real estate, but I am transitioning into being a full time writer. I'm working on the prequel and the sequel to Gasping for Air. So, yeah, simultaneously trying to publish two books instead of one. I just like a challenge, I guess. And Doug is a radon mitigator, and I'm sorry. Can you tell I'm the bossy, domineering <laughs> one? I will let him speak. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm I'm Doug, and um, I'm 58 years old, and I was born and raised in Clinton, Iowa, along the Mississippi River. Okay. Um, and I just love that back there, but uh, now I find myself in Illinois, um, doing a lot of residential construction. I do a lot of rebuilding of homes. I uh, have built many new homes in the past, but I find myself spending pretty much my time in, in a customer's house, you know, doing the repairs that are necessary. You know, Whoa. a lot of electrical, radon gas mitigations and total re rehabs, remodels. Then he comes home and deals with me. <laughs> Can you guys tell us the story of how you I paid him to say that. <laughs> Can you tell us the story of how you met? Yeah, well, it's not, I wish it was like this romantic, like whirlwind, you know, grand overture. I was actually friends with his sister-in-law. She's also a realtor and we both had little ones at home, just connected and just naturally over the years grew to, you know, learn more about her family, met nieces, nephews, their dad, and somewhere in the midst of that, I met Doug because she's married to Doug's brother. So just naturally, we're, we're in a small town. I guess I should back myself up and say, when you're in a small town, everybody kind of knows everybody and knows everybody's business. And so it's kind of hard to miss people because there's not many people here. <laughs> and, and how small of a town are we talking about? Because where we moved is a population of 900. 
Oh, I've lived wow. in a town of 900 before. That is very small. This town we live in, like I don't know. 2,000, 2,100. Yeah, but okay. the circle we go in is maybe like 40. So it's <laughs> it feels a lot more confined <laughs> when you take out the people you don't know. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah, so we, we just, we knew each other. We always liked each other. And, you know, unfortunately, my former marriage was over in 2005, absolutely. But I did not actually get divorced um, until 2020. Um, but we lived separately and everything. It, it was just, you know, it, it, it was an abusive situation. He was a narcissist, um, very controlling, isolating, uh, manipulative. There was a financial abuse, sexual abuse, just a lot of awful things. And, and unfortunately, Doug would hear about these things through his sister-in-law, who I would confide some of those things to. So we just naturally got to know each other and realized we had a lot in common, but it wasn't until after, obviously, I was completely out of that situation that you know we connected as a couple but i think for us because we knew each other already and liked each other and i mean there wasn't really i wouldn't say a courtship necessarily we just kind of decided like oh let's just be together <laughs> i don't know do you have anything to add to that and, and what was it what was it about each other that you fell in love with well there was a lot of things that i noticed in the time that I got to know Dana prior to us dating, the things that I liked in, in a partner and a spouse, you know, is well, her work ethic, number one, just, just a work, a workhorse. She's just a workhorse, not to mention her, you know, attractive. I was attract, physically attracted to her very good looking gal. And, and then, you know, we, we get into these deep conversations about our animals and our children and our, yeah. our families and things like this. And, we had we had a lot of common interests and we we both loved animals we both worked yeah. hard we loved being home after work and we spending time in the kitchen doing things out in the yard having a garden and canning some of our own stuff and we talked about all these things and now we're actually living them yeah and that was the thing i i for me was the animals it sounds like a weird thing to say but kind of the transition moment for me with Doug, like, oh, like I kind of saw him in a different light. It's it's actually sad, but his, your dad's dog and your dog passed away in a short time frame, yes. wasn't it? So he had two dogs that I loved. I mean, I, I was at his house, you know, every so often. And so I, I knew these dogs, they were, they never let me get out of the car without, you know, jumping up on my lap and giving me kisses and stuff. And when I heard that they passed, it just made me so sad. And he was so brokenhearted and just that sensitivity. And I think, you know, it's hard not to compare coming from somebody who, you know, turned up the volume on the TV while I was miscarrying a baby <laughs> because my sobbing was too loud, you know, to somebody just seeing a man that was, being vulnerable and sensitive and not ashamed of it, it was just so attractive to me. And, and I liked him already and I knew him. And But that to me was the turning point. I felt like animals, but we do like to cook and eat together too. We like eating. <laughs> hey, Doug, um, now, were you married prior to this marriage? Yes, I was married 25 years and I had two adult boy children, you know, two adult boys. 29 and 27. So I was, okay. yeah, I found myself alone. I wasn't alone. My youngest son lives with me and still does. And, uh, but I did find myself after being divorced, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about what do I want my future to look like? You know, do I want to spend, and my dad is 90 years old or he will be very soon. And he very told soon. me, he said, you have a lot of life to live. He said, don't, don't think that, you know, he said, being alone for the rest of your life would be a long time. He said, don't, you know, definitely think about what you want to do and, and move, his, move that way. And his dad, I love, his dad's like a straight shooter. He doesn't care what you think. He's going to tell you how it is. And so I would sometimes go hang out with his dad, just the two of us and confide in him about my situation. And I'm like, I'm done. I'm divorcing the guy. I'm going to go be alone in the mountains of North Carolina and get me a great Dane. And 
Doug's dad is like, no, you're not. You're only in your 40s. You're not going to be alone another 40 years. I said, oh, yes, I can. And I was like, watch me. I'm going to go be alone. And then, you know, less than a year later, we're getting married. So, Doug, in, in kind of knowing her background and the struggles that she was going through, what was your thought about, you know, kind of approaching her to be in a relationship together? Well, I... I thought I saw her health declining rapidly and such as the loss of weight. And, and I had already had feelings for her, but I was, um, I wasn't letting her know that I didn't know exactly where she was in if she was or wasn't divorced. You know, I didn't follow it. So I held back, but I, when I saw her going through such a terrible time and losing weight and not looking good, looking very frail, I, told myself, I said, and I had this conversation with my father and to see if he was seeing what I was seeing with her health. Cause she did clean our houses, you know, and my dad's like, yes, he said, something is not right. She's, she's in trouble. She's down to 93 pounds. She's not acting herself. And I saw her go from her normal weight down to that. I'm like in two weeks, in a very short period of time. I, so I, I basically said, if I, there's 11, almost an 11 year age difference. So I did consider, you know, I thought many times, what do I do here? But then there was no, nothing stopping me when I, once I made the decision that I'm going to, I, I needed to let her know that I had feelings for her and, and, and go at that, you know? So how did that conversation go about? Text messages, you know, I would, when, when I saw her losing weight rapidly and not being herself, I, um, I thought, I need to keep an eye on her. I need to talk to her, text message, call her on the phone and talk with her, see see what's going on, if there's anything that I can do to help or if we can, yeah. you know, I told her I wish she could just go with me. I, I basically yeah, he was just driving said down the road. Day, she wasn't like, do doing well. I need well. to come and get you. I and... said, can I come and just get you? I said, literally. <laughs> and I was not kidding. But in a text message, she took it as a joke. But I, I was serious. I said, I would just love to come over your house, pick you up and take you away for the weekend. And just so that we can, you know, be together. And, and I reminded him I was married regardless. I was the divorce legally, wasn't final, so I, yeah. I and I didn't want to be that girl I and I didn't want him to be with that girl. But at that point for me, I had been diagnosed with this lung syndrome, upper airway resistance syndrome, which is the neurologist said it's like having COPD and fibromyalgia all at the same time because they were like, you're autoimmune. They tested me for, I mean, I mean, Mayo Clinic took 19 vials of my blood all at once. I don't know how out of a 93 pound body, but all that weight I lost came within two weeks. The doctor sat me down and said, you are at minimal, all of your organs are at minimal survival basis, bases. You, your body is pretty much shutting down. You need to stop whatever is causing this. This It was from too much cortisol running through my body is what Mayo Clinic determined. Where I, I don't know if you're familiar, but the cortisol levels normally at any point in a 24-hour period should be between 100 and 600 or 700, somewhere around there. And mine were consistently 2,500 and higher because of the situation I was in. I couldn't sleep at night because he would come at me in my sleep. There was domestic violence involved. There was just a lot going on. And, and I have a son. I have a 20-year-old. Um, but he was, what, 17, 16, 17 when all of this was happening. So I had to worry about him, but also prevent him from knowing and seeing too much. So there was a lot going on for me. I just was not, you know, I couldn't. I meant what I said to his dad. Like, I just need to go. I just need some time alone. But he did and take I, on a very, he just kind of poked in with texts like, how are you doing? Or even like a happy Mother's Day, just every now and then. It wasn't that often, but it was nice to know, you know, like he'll say, what's for dinner? And I tell him, oh, I'm having pizza. Just nice to know somebody was there, if that makes any sense. And I have daddy issues. I'm just going to say I totally have daddy issues. And <laughs> But between the two things, when Dana yeah. was not doing well physically, and then the fact that she told me that she was planning on leaving the state, she didn't say where, but I said, are you leaving the state? 
He said, yes, very soon. So then I had to think. I had to act. I'm an adult. This is an opportunity. I mean, I, I don't. I said, I'm going to have to find you if you leave because I'm not going to be able to not know where you're at. So either <laughs> one thing led yeah. to another and um, here we are, you know. Yeah. I mean, he just said we have to talk and I, he didn't say anything because have you noticed he's a little quiet? So, and I'm not, and <laughs> he, he just didn't say anything after saying we need to meet and talk. So I just looked at him and kind of knew, I said, I'm not going to North Carolina, am I? And he just nodded his head. No, <laughs> I said, well, darn, but we just made a choice. We just made a choice. He, like he said, he had thought about what he wanted his life to look like and, and, even when he was talking about marriage, I'm like, I don't need to be married again right away. And you don't, we don't need to be married. We could just be a couple, like doesn't need to be a marriage. And I was not, I'm not one of those people that gets divorced and like, oh, never getting married again. I mean, I had no intention to do that, but what he thought life looked like in the future and what I wanted for my future, it just matched. It was just easy. There was no, honestly, no effort. Everything just matched up. And so we were just like, well, why are we going to deny this? You know, if we've both been waiting for presumably each other or, you know, this relationship that we have, then why not give it a shot? Can you go back to meeting your ex and what things were like in the beginning and when you sort of figured out that you know, his more true colors and what happened at that point. <laughs> yeah, it was right away. So I'm going to back it up to childhood. You know, I was born to a teenage mother who didn't want me. She got married to somebody who really didn't want me and verbally and physically abused me my entire childhood, told me every day, nobody wanted me there. I should have never been born. They shouldn't have to pay for a kid they don't even want all these terrible things. So I went out, I was out of there at 18. I said, I am never letting a man mistreat me like that. And my mother, the whole, my whole childhood, she was one of those mothers that looked away. She didn't see it. She didn't hear it. Even if she did, she'd say, oh, that's just how he treats you. You know, how angry he gets is just equivalent to how much he loves you. So here I am, ill-equipped going into the world at 18, naive and vulnerable, just wanting somebody on this planet to love me. And, you know, here comes along this guy who is promising me everything. It's you and me against the world. You're the one. All these, <laughs> now I call them dumb, but all these cliche things. But I mean, I, I was, a, you know, I wanted to hear those things. I wanted to be that person. I wanted to be important and significant to somebody. Um, and he was that. But I mean, it wasn't even maybe three weeks in, red flags all over. I saw anger, violence, um, silent treatment, manipulation, the gaslighting. But see, as, as adamant as I was going into the world saying, this is never going to happen to me. I'm never going to let a man do this or anybody. I found myself being more like my mother and, oh, he's just in a bad mood or excusing it this way. Maybe he doesn't feel good. Maybe it was me. Maybe I upset him. I should watch myself. And then, you know, the thing about narcissistic abuse is it's insidious and they're manipulating you the whole time and making you feel like it really is you. And I mean, you have to look at my childhood and this, and I'm thinking I am the common denominator. Maybe I really just am that unlovable. I, if I am that insufferable, I got to fix myself. I went, I was so, he had me so convinced I was bipolar <laughs> that I even went to a psychiatrist, like basically saying, I swear I'm bipolar. This is all the stuff he says about me and went back home with two different medications that I was on for almost 20 years, you know? Oh. And then once I got divorced and, and the doctor saw at my yearly checkup, like you're actually not doing too bad. Like, let's wean you off. And, and I'm not on any, he, and he was like, I'm mistaken. You actually had CPS, CPTSD, which we mistook as bipolar, but really you were just married to, you know, an A word. 
And really, I was. And and that comes with a lot of ups and downs. But it's because, of course, I'm going to experience joy. I'm not walking around, you know, sullen and sad all the time. But life was not happy. So, yeah, when, when somebody, you know, wants you dead, <laughs> you tend to cry or be a little upset. So they were reasonable reactions to unreasonable circumstances, but they were misdiagnosed as bipolar. But I mean, that's how deep narcissism can get is that they actually get into your head to where you're convinced. And then you're convincing doctors of things that you don't even have. It's a terrible cycle, but I saw the red flags. They were always there. And that's why, you know, Doug is like the nicest guy that you could ever meet. But I, I might, you know, I've even told him even recently, we've been married a couple of years, but I'm like, I the trust issue for me, it's always going to be there. I cannot say there's maybe two people in this entire world that I 100% trust in any, in every way possible. And I would love to say one of them is Doug and it's not, he's very high on, on my list of trust, but it's hard. It's hard for me to fully give that to somebody. And to have a whole lifetime of it, you know, it's not going to resolve in a couple of years, but yeah, I'm going to be 48. I can't just expect like, and, and that's, and I think part of it is me because I hold myself back and tell myself you trusted before too quickly don't trust, don't trust. And so how long were you married? How long were you in the marriage? 25 years, 25 years. At, at what point did you start to say, you know what, I need to get myself out of here and actually take those steps to make that happen? Like how long in between? Yeah. Like how long in between? Right. So the first time I went to an attorney was in 2005 and that was five years into the marriage, 10 years into the relationship. But I had a two-year-old sitting on my lap and, you know, here we go again with small town stuff. The attorney is like, well, I know the both of you. And, you know, he didn't mean anything by it, but he started making me question everything. And I just, I kind of just like left there, like, forget it. Just never mind that I was here. Let's just pretend this didn't happen. Because if if my husband found out, I'm going to get in big trouble. So let's just forget it. But over the course of the marriage, I went to a total of seven attorneys. So, you know, the seventh one, I finally, I hate to say pulled the trigger because right after the divorce, my ex did shoot a gun outside my bedroom window, among other things that he did. So yeah, it's, it's scary. It's very hard when you're in a situation where you're living. I mean, if I go back to like how I got this lung issue, it's because of all that cortisol living in fight or flight for so I was afraid. I remember going to, I've been to many doctors with all my issues, but one doctor said, I think you just are so afraid. You are living with so much fear. You're afraid of people. You're afraid of doing anything, afraid of saying anything. And I was. And so going to an attorney and thinking about actually filing for divorce, that was terrifying because he threatened also to take our son. He had set me up with this whole bipolar thing, you know, and even some narrative he was creating, you know, in the lies he was spreading among his family, my family. He was trying to set me up to make me look like an unfit mother. So he had this big plan and was holding this all over my head. And I knew about it, which was the sad thing, but I couldn't do anything about it. So I was what afraid made if the, I left uh, him. What made the seventh him. attorney the, you know, the deciding factor? Why, why at that point after six others? Well, so the sixth one, that should have been the one. <laughs> that was one week before we went under the shelter in place in during COVID, I left my consultation with her with homework. She was like, just get this stuff straightened out. Because here's the thing too. We had a little farm. We had cows, pigs, chickens. It's not just like we were living in a house in the suburbs and could just up and go. <laughs> I had to worry about actual like farm stock and like things. It wasn't just as simple as me and my son walking out. Um, And I was the primary breadwinner. He hadn't worked in four and a half years. So that was another situation. So I had some things to figure out, but I was ready to go. 
then we go under the shelter in place, which is the universe's joke on me because then I was stuck in that house with him. Um, but fortunately, when the shelter in place was lifted, I came home from work one afternoon and my son came in shortly after me and we both kind of looked around like something was off in the house. He was not there. Things were missing. Then I went upstairs on my way to my loft office. I was passing the master bedroom and saw all the sheets, blankets, pillows, everything was gone. Bare mattress. His closet was open. It was empty. He was gone. And I was like, hallelujah, amen. I should have been crying, but I was like, thank you, God, that I don't have to deal with trying to get him out of this house because that would have been a fight. So that for me was was the turning point. And it was just a matter of waiting for the courts to reopen because that was the issue. And so by the time I got back with that sixth attorney, she said she was so backed up with cases, it would be a while. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I need to cut this off immediately. So I talked to a judge I knew and he said, call this guy. I called that attorney. I said, how long can you get till I can get a divorce? He said, three weeks. I said, sign me up. <laughs> and so we did it. Three weeks later, I was divorced. The end. Did he try to contest it at all? No. But I so also gone, gave him gone. everything he wanted. I, I I said to him and I said to my attorney, I don't care what he could take everything I have. And I'm not going to fight over a TV or a cushion or anything, but I want my son. I will not leave without my son. I don't care about anything else. Money can be made. Things can be replaced. I was literally in a situation where my health was on the line, my sanity, my peace. I just wanted to be done. Had he not left, do you think that you would have held on longer? No, I was a hundred percent. I had already actually looked at places for me and my son. I was just, I was already trying to get out of there. I just had mm -hmm. to wait. It sounds terrible. I had to wait for the time because when you're dealing with somebody who is abusive and violent and he drank a lot, <laughs> um, you just have to wait for the time, you know, and I figured it would come and it did and, and it happened. It, but no, I, I could not. There was no way I tried. I tried. My son had actually made me promise at one point. I think it was 13 or 14. We were alone and he said, well, you promised me something. I said, what's that? Because I'd do anything for the kid. And he said, just please don't leave dad. He says, I know you're going to leave him, but just please don't leave him until after I'm out of high school. And he was planning on going to school in Wyoming. He said, wait till I'm, I'm in Wyoming. I said, why is that? He says, because dad's going to make life a living hell and I don't want to be here for it. And so I wow. promised him that because, I mean, you do anything for your kids. And I had one year mm -hmm. to go. But at that point, when my health had taken such a dive, I'm like, it, it, it's me or him. <clears throat> so he's got to go. I have now, to be Doug, you were Doug, you were kind of watching her go through this, you know, that the later years and everything. What was that? What was that like for you? Well, I knew I had to act now or risk, uh, you know, her not being with us. She was failing what I thought was rapidly, extremely rapidly. So I thought divorced or not divorced, you know, your life has to change immediately whatever is going on and causing this uh, change has to be made. Did you have an interaction with her ex? No. Well, today or at that point, no, but I have, I have had since. At my son's graduation, I think. Things it's, like that. Yeah. yeah. Grad, uh, high school graduation. No more than a hi. Why do you think hi, he died? Why do I think he left? I can answer that very easily because he's a narcissist and he knew I was leaving. He knew he had been making comments for probably six months before that he had caught on that, you know, I was definitely different. And, and you know, he had unfortunately overheard a couple things that I had, you know, commented on about being out of state and different things I was planning on doing. Um, after our son was out of high school and whatever. And those are not things that he was ever interested in doing or had any desire to do with me just because he's my husband. So he knew I was on my way out. But being a narcissist, he had to leave me because his ego couldn't take 
the rejection of having to tell people that his wife left him. So he left me and then told everybody he had to because I was harassing him and abusing him because I'm a narcissist. So. Can we take we'll take a little pause here and we'll talk a little bit about the word narcissist, okay? Yes. Because I think we may need to make a distinction, you know, for our audience and everything out there, the difference between the word narcissist and narcissistic personality disorder. Yes. Which actually is a an actual diagnosis. It's a personality disorder that is a, a diagnosis in the psychological field and psychiatric field. But the word narcissist has become a very common and layperson term. So maybe we could talk a little bit about narcissist as you are, you know, using that word and kind of how it plays out in your book and how it also plays out, played out in your relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you a hundred percent. The term is used very loosely. And I have to say, I, there are a lot of different narcissists and some are not bad. I know one specifically that just thinking of her makes me laugh because she just really loves herself that much, but she really does look good. She looks as good as she thinks she does, but she's not bothering anyone with it. You know, narcissists in general, and I mean, very basically have an elevated sense of um, themselves of entitlement. They, they need appreciation and, you know, they need to be exalted in some way, um, to feed their ego. We can get more into depth, but when I am talking about narcissists, I am talking about malignant narcissists, which are narcissists that are intentionally causing people harm. And then, you know, when we talk about narcissistic abuse, it's a malignant narcissist that is abusing another person, you know, abusing, meaning, um, you know, narcissistic abuse to me is kind of all encompassing. There's verbal abuse. There can be physical abuse. There's manipulation, the gaslighting. There's often financial abuse, um, isolating their victim so they don't have outside influence. What else? There's sexual abuse. I, I experienced that, you know, it doesn't necessarily not everybody experiences all the different forms of abuse, but it is all encompassing in that way. So it's a narcissist that is abusing you. That's why it's called narcissistic abuse. But unfortunately, like in my ex's case, he is never going to go. He doesn't think anything is wrong with him. So he's never going to go anywhere where he could be diagnosed. So I think that's where among common people, that's where the, the issue is why narcissism or the word narcissist is used so loosely, because I think there are a lot of people that don't go get help. And part of that is because some people don't have the financial ability or the, or the insurance or, you know, whatever, or they just really don't think anything's wrong with them, which is usually the case with a narcissist. So what are some of the things that, you know, the person that you were in the relationship that couldn't leave and how you developed to be the person who could. Were, were there people saying things to you? Were you having aha moments? What, what were some of the things where you kind of woke up and went, I think I'm done here? Honestly, for me, it was the, the day that the doctor told me that my body was shutting down. I just remember breaking down crying and saying, I don't want to mm -hmm. die. And he's like, you're not going to die. But he, he just said, you need to change your lifestyle. And I think that was his polite way of saying, you need to stop you know, with this guy, because he had previously suggested very kindly that I read this book or that book. But, you know, the thing is, is that when you're with somebody like that, you put on, they're wearing a mask, you know, to the world, they're charming and funny, and nobody would ever suspect them of doing the things they do. But you're wearing a mask, too, because you're still going out in the world acting like you're just a perfectly fine, normal couple and going to your holidays and kids parties and all that. So nobody would know. Probably the only people who had an idea something was wrong are any of the people that went to my church because I'd get on my knees while everyone was taking communion and just sometimes sob. I was just so sad that I had let my life come to this because I'm not that person at all. But I think that's the thing is that when I finally realized I had to put myself first, in order to physically exist and, and function for my body to work properly, 
I realized that I had completely lost myself in that situation. And, and it's sad that, you know, people, I meet so many people that have been through the same thing or are in that position now. And they're like, where do you start? I said, honestly, I started with like, I like this song, so I'm going to listen to it. He never liked when I played that CD in the car, but I'm going to play it because I like it. I like that dress, so I'm going to wear it, even though he said I'm not allowed to wear that dress. You know, there were all these rules with him. And it was now I'm just like, you know, somebody, one of Doug's nephews said that I'm like an animal that's just been freed from a cage. And, and that's how it felt, because now I can be me. I can have a favorite color and I can make what I want for dinner and put on the TV show I want to watch. And nobody's criticizing me or cussing at me or calling me names and it, it sounds so ridiculous, but you can be any societal level, any level of education. It happens to the best of us. I, it, it can happen to anybody, and it happens to men, too. Men are not left out of this. I've met many men who have been in situations where they have been abused by narcissistic women. You know, there's a concept called learned helplessness, and this was, mm -hmm. you know, um, came about during a, an, an experiment and research, they, they would have this, um, this cage with a, a electrified floor, right? And they would have a dog in there and they would electrify one half of the, the floor and the dog would jump to the other side. And then they would electrify that side and the dog would jump to the back to the other side. And then when they electrified the whole floor, the dog learned that it couldn't escape. And so it just kind of shook in the corner and just took it. And even though they, even if they opened the door of the cage, gave an actual way of exiting, the dog d didn't take that exit because it knew that it was helpless and it learned it that believed. it was helpless and yeah. believed that it was helpless. Oh. Right. And so, you know, a lot of times what happens in these uh, abusive relationships, you know, you need an abuser, you need a victim, you know, in order for an abuser to abuse. And, and so in those situations, this learned helplessness develops and the, the, the victim in the situation learns or believes that they're helpless and they're many are not able to escape. You know, many right. don't get to that point where they say, you know what, I do have a path out of here. And so, you know, I think it would be really important you know, for you to, to kind of identify for those victims out there, you know, what was it, you know, that, and for you, you said the, the physical reality, right? Facing that was like, my body is failing here physically, you know, that that was a wake up call for you. And, and, and I think that it, it, it is important for all those victims out there to be able to identify some of these little snapshots of of an exit right and and the yeah. ability to not be helpless yeah that is really interesting and when you were just describing that i could completely relate because there was <clears throat> one point it was actually back in 2006 2007 ironically after i'd met with the first attorney um that my ex did move out got a moving truck moved took off because he got himself a girlfriend um and I knew about it and he would still come to the house. And let's just say we were still acting like we were married when he was with us. And, and then he'd go off and be with his girlfriend. And, and my biggest regret is that I didn't leave then. I feel like I was one of those helpless dogs. Like when you were just saying that they opened the door, the door was open. He had somebody else distracting him. I could have taken my son and walked out. And that is my biggest regret that I never did that at that time, because at that time would have probably been the safest time for me to do it. And my son was young enough that he wouldn't have remembered all the stuff that he now unfortunately had to witness having lived with the rest of it. But I, I, I agree that, it, <clears throat> but I think that that's the thing about abusers that they make you feel they they condition you just like these dogs were conditioned and it's little by little it creeps in so you don't even realize it's happening but the thing the aspect of narcissism that adds to that is that you know like i talk about in my book there was this constant push and pull every time he thought he was losing me 
you would like reel me back in, you know, mm. oh, look, I bought you this thing that you've been wanting or let's go do, you know, do that thing you've been wanting to do. And I love you and caressing my cheek when we watch TV and buying me peanut M&Ms because he knows I love them. And it, it was, you know, that love bombing stuff again. And then I'd be like, oh, see, he does care. It's not always bad. He has it in him. Go team. And then I'd stay in. And then you'd pull back again and then something. So it was just always this ebb and flow, but I was participating in it until I wasn't. And then he was ebbing and flowing over here, kind of like, what the heck? You're not doing it with me. And I was like, nope, I'm done. But I, I don't know. I think everybody, that's the problem with these relationships is everybody, you know, says, wasn't there something that happened or was there that one point? And, and there's so many there's so many, but yeah, there definitively is something that makes that just breaks you that you are absolutely done. But even then I still didn't leave. I was like, nope, I'm staying in. My kid told me stay in until he's out of high school a year to go. I can do it. I think there's another thing at play that's um, pretty unconscious. And, you know, you said a few of the things like it's really hard to trust your own thinking because, you know, not only have you heard it from him, but you heard it your whole life. And then it isn't that it's a situation that is 100% abusive. It's confusing. It's, it's conflicting. And so it doesn't matter how often the abuse is happening. It matters how often you are in a state of fight or flight, worrying about it going to happen. And that's the piece that really gets your brain in a place where you can't think your way out of it because that stress takes over so much. So it's really the idea of it is even more damaging than the actual stuff where it makes sense. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And I think that that's what it is. I mean, for me, I have never been this anxious my entire life. And honestly, I'm still very, very anxious. I overthink everything. I ruminate all night long about what if and this and what it, it, but it's like, I I've been doing it so long. I'm trying to undo it and rest my mind and rest my nervous system. And this man's got the patience of a saint, but you know, his energy kind of brings mine down a little bit, you know, so I'm not so up here all the time. And so it's helped me because I know there's been a lot of people that have you know, criticized and judged like, oh, jumping right in again and this and that. But, you know, he's right for me. He's what I need. And and he's more than willing and able. He knew what he was uh, taking on when, when he got into this with me. But absolutely that living in that state just so long, it's just so damaging. And, and it really causes so much confusion. Like you said, it, it was, you know, I stayed so long because I saw that there was good. I'm not going to deny there were times we laughed together. There were times, you know, we actually had a good time. It wasn't all bad, but that's what frustrated me because I'm like, okay, well, if he can be that nice and can appear to love me and act like he does, then he's choosing not to when he's not. So Why would you choose to treat somebody so badly, you know, and that just, I just couldn't do it anymore. I I don't know. I think everybody in that situation, just like I said, there's just something for them personally that that's just it. What what are some of the challenges the two of you faced together as a result of your past relationships? I feel bad when I get anxious or, you know, if I'm having what I call a moment, I'm aware of the moment. I don't want to be so uh, reactive sometimes. And I feel like, I mean, I hate, I, I hate the idea that I'm putting his heart through any kind of upset because of things other people did to me. I'm always going to feel guilty and I always feel like I'm responsible. I have been to blame for 40 some years. So for me, I just take things. So I'm, he says I'm sensitive, but I mean, it's more than sensitive. I actually feel like if somebody's not smiling or somebody's not 
gobbling down their dinner. I must not have cooked it right. I must not be doing something right. I'm just always worried. And I think then that stresses him. <laughs> but what do yeah. you think? Well, there's a lot of what I call security type things. For instance, yeah. I didn't lock the door behind me living in the house. I'm out in an agricultural <laughs> area. I would even leave a door open. Didn't bother me. But, you know, after when Dana moved in, you know, that was not an option anymore. We, the doors need to be closed and locked. And, and I knew this going in because I, I saw how she operated at her house, locked up. Everything's locked up right behind her as she moves through the house. Doors are closed, locked, things like this. So I knew there was some fear of something there, you know, ingrained in her head. I need to feel safe. I just need to feel safe. I used to put two by fours, chairs, anything under doorknobs of locked doors, just because I knew that at least if he did break in the door, because he would sometimes, if I locked him out, then I had that extra few seconds and I would hear, I I was afraid to fall asleep. So I wanted extra time Hmm. to know that something was going to happen. So yeah, coming here, I know I'm safe, but I needed, yeah. We started locking doors and buttoning things All types of security things. Like like I would not walk up behind her in the house if she did not expect (laughs) me. That would just scare her. And I could see her, the fear in her eyes. And it didn't, this was not an act. This was something that um, took a while to, for me to get used to. It's just sad. It took a while for her to, it's starting to fade away. Yeah. It's getting there. fading. But I mean, even yesterday, his so son, nothing like it was just his two- son is 27 and still, and I was coming out of my office just yesterday. And when I came out, I saw his son standing in the hallway, but three feet back with his arms up and I giggled and said, I'm sorry. And he said, I just didn't want to scare you. And it, it you know, it makes me sad. I don't want to have that effect on like everybody, mm-hmm. but I appreciate the consideration of it. We all get startled at time to time, but you can, it's very quick to tell the difference between an actual fear of something and just being startled. You know, there's no doubt that she had a, had a fear of these things, certain things. And I, I found them the hard way, you know, but (laughs) I feel terrible, but no, that's all that one is going away very quickly. It's getting better. Yeah. No. Well, Doug, you have a great tool. It's called your heart. And when she's emotionally dysregulated, if you listen to his heart, that will send out the right bonding chemicals that you need to soothe your nervous system as well as help you regulate. And that's one of the greatest things we can do because we get wounded through relationship and we heal through relationship and bonded partners regulate each other's biorhythms. And so keep that in mind, you know, when you're having a bad moment, that you can find that yeah. safe place listening to his heart. I so, actually have that in my book. There was there were moments and I found if I just listened to his heartbeat, then mm-hmm. mine would match his and it would just calm me and soothe me. And then I could come down a little bit. Yeah. It's very true. So last question, what is it that your partner does that you know they love you? This is really dumb, but it's, you know, Valentine's Day anniversaries. I don't get flowers. I don't get these (laughs) grand gifts, but it's like, you know, winters here can get really, really cold. And my body temperature is a little lower than everyone else's. It's things like he'll walk in, like he just went to Menards to buy me a space heater to have right next to me in my office. Like he just wants... He just wants to make sure I'm warm. It's a, it's the little, little things just to make sure that I feel taken care of and that I'm, I don't know, it just, it, it feels loving to me. It's better than any, you know, flowers or diamond earrings or anything, you know, just knowing that he, he is noticing that I need something and, and just taking care of it. And I could go on and on for hours about the things that Dana does for me, but it starts in the morning, you know, with the coffee's ready, the food's ready. If I wish it's everything, you know, it's just, and it goes on all day long, the communication and, you know, but that's where it starts. And it just, it's all day long. It's she's puts me first. 
no doubt. And I'm not, you know, easy to predict what I'm thinking or what I'm, no. you know, because my, <laughs> my mind does go towards my job in the morning, but in, uh, he blows with the wind, I say. He's here, and then he's there, and he's there, and I'm this type A structured person, but I notice patterns. I pick up on everything. I'm hypervigilant, so I notice it all, so I figured a lot of it out. But I think it's. I think we're essentially saying the same thing. It's just recognizing your partner's needs and making sure they're met. And with her organizational charts, and she's very organized, and, and I'm included in all of those notes it's not just her schedule but it's our schedule together so that we can so that i can view that and see what we're all doing now it's it's those types of things well dana where can someone find uh, a copy of this book gasping for air the stranglehold of narcissistic abuse where can they get a copy of it or get to know a little bit more about your story yeah, absolutely. Um, anywhere you buy books, it is not on bookstore shelves yet, but any online, uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, wherever. Um, you can also go to my website. There's a link for the book there, www.danasdiaz.com. Um, and there's more information about me and your podcast will be on there once this is released. And um, yeah, social media, I always tell people, reach out to me. I communicate with people all day long, every day, whether it's with a connection with a story or you, you have something you want to share with me. I'm on Facebook and Instagram, so definitely reach out anytime. Fantastic. Dana and Doug, we want to thank you for being on our podcast today. This was really enlightening. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. You know, people have been sharing their stories since the beginning of time to bond, heal, and grow. And we hope that by you guys sharing your story, it's enriched your lives and the lives of our listeners. I want to thank all of you for joining us today on Couple Synergy. Our passion is in helping couples and people have happy and healthy relationships. And this podcast gives us a fun way of bringing our knowledge and expertise to you, our listeners. For all of you listening, please let us know how you enjoyed the show. If you have any questions, comments, or topic suggestions, please email us at contact at couplesynergy.com. For more information about Couple Synergy and our programs such as Relationship One, the home study course, the Couples Relationship Enhancement Weekend, and our premier coaching program called Couple to Couple, look us up online at couplesynergy.com. And if you know someone who could benefit from this episode, please download it and share it. And thank you for listening. Until next time, synergize your life and synergize your love. You have been listening to Couple Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. Couple Synergy was recorded, edited, and produced by Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. Voiceover and music entitled Breathe and Let Go was recorded and composed by Gina Gonzalez.